Would you pray with me, please? Father, wow. What you have done for us, in spite of us, may our hearts overflow with thanksgiving this morning, with praise and honor and blessing because of who you are and what you've done. Now as we open your word, Lord, may you help me. This morning, this is a very, very weighty and serious text. Some of the hardest words to hear in all of the Bible. But they are essential for us and necessary to us. So may I present your truth clearly, accurately, and passionately. So take your words and speak through them. Take our minds and renew them. Take our hearts and transform them by your grace and for your glory. And in the name of your Son, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you for your singing. I mean that. What a blessing it is to sing the great truths of who our God is together. Um, Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I invite you to find your places in a copy of the Bible that you have or one that is near you. Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9, that's New Testament. We got Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and Mark is the second book. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find one in the hymnal rack of a pew in front of you, and you just turn to page 1005. And that's where we'll be this morning in Mark chapter 9. And as you're finding your place, let me just share. I like to share kind of personal stuff with you um, before I really get into the text. And, and um, about a week and a half ago, I had a dream. And um, preachers have weird dreams. I won't tell you what all those dreams are, like standing in front of people in, a, in the pulpit and realizing you're not fully dressed. But the dream I had about a week and a half ago was I was preaching and preaching away and I looked up at the clock and it said 12.30. And I woke up in a cold sweat. And this is very, very unusual for me, but I had a repeat of that dream last night. You say, you shouldn't share that with us. That scares us. It scares me. I I woke up in a cold sweat and um, because this is... As I prayed, this is an important text. But before we jump in to Mark's gospel where we've been following Jesus as he lives that life on purpose for us and then calls us to follow him in living that life on purpose, there's something I really need to address here in these verses. Because depending on what Bible version you are using this morning, there are noticeable differences here. If you're using the English Standard Version of the Bible, you will notice that there is no verse 44 or 46 listed in the text. If, on the other hand, you have a King James or a New King James Version, you have verses 44 and 46 listed, which happen to contain the very same words as verse 48, which read, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is referring to hell. So what's up? What's up with that? 
Did the ESV translators just kind of wipe out or erase the words of Jesus here in verses 44 and 46? Or did the King James Version translators add to the words of Jesus? Well, I can't dive deeply into that question this morning. I just don't have the time or we'll be here till 1230. But I can give you a quick flyover explanation. The King James Version and the New King James Version were translated from a group of actually newer manuscripts. And it is possible that a scribe may have inserted verses 44 and 46 to emphasize not just the reality of hell, but the seriousness of hell, the hell of hell. We don't know if a scribe added those verses. He doesn't tell us that he did. He didn't sign his name there. But we do know that if he did, he didn't add any new doctrine or change the meaning of what Jesus is saying. On the other hand, the English Standard Version is translated from an older group of manuscripts closer that date closer to the time of Jesus. And the fact that verses 44 and 46 aren't there doesn't mean that the ESV translators removed verses from God's Word. It simply means that those verses weren't a part of the manuscripts from which the ESV was translated. You're like, okay, PK. So what's the point of all of this? Well, I'm so glad you asked. That's, that's a great question. That means I haven't put you to sleep yet. So here it is. Here's the big point. Whether or not your English translation contains verses 44 and 46, the meaning of what Jesus is teaching here is unchanged because you have verse 48 in both translations. The textual variances here don't affect theology or doctrine, so don't let those differences distract you from the eternal seriousness and weightiness of what Jesus is saying here. So let's read it, because this is some tough stuff, but essential stuff for us. Beginning in verse 38 of Mark chapter 9, where John says to Jesus, Teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, 
But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of our God. You learn a lot about someone by what they take seriously. Um, our first three years here in the Chicagoland area, we have learned something about you all that you take very seriously. And it's not the Cubs, and it's certainly not the Bears. It's your food. How many of you would acknowledge this morning that as Chicagoans, you take food seriously? Raise your hand. Shame on all of you who don't have your hands raised. You're not speaking the truth. I mean, just the last couple of months, we've had people gift us Romanian sausage and Bulgarian sausage. And for the very first time in my life, I've tried now Romanian sausage and Bulgarian sausage. And it's like, what have I been missing? I am becoming a Chicagoan. I'm getting serious about food. Listen, if you're serious about food, you should probably also be serious about exercise. You know people who are serious about exercise? You know, they're runners. They're avid runners. They run every day, whether it's hot or cold. They run when they're home and when they're on vacation. Some of you are very serious about your lawn, right? Every blade of grass on your property is important to you and precious to you. And every weed is too. And so you don't just de-weed, you re-de-weed weekly. Others of you, you're serious about decorating your home, and so you're on this kind of endless remodeling journey. Or maybe you're serious about your career or your retirement. Or young people, you're serious about your grades or about that college scholarship. Here's the kicker. Whatever is serious to you lays claims to you or lays claim to you, to your heart, to your time, to your mind, to your energy, to your dreams, to your wallet. So what is that for you? What is the ultimately serious thing for you? Because the big idea of this text in Mark chapter 9, that for God, humility is infinitely serious. He takes humility seriously, and so should we. It's what we began talking about last week from verses 30 through 37 here in Mark 9, where Jesus and the disciples are making their way to Capernaum. And along that way, Jesus reminds them, I'm going to die. That's why I've come. I'm going to lay down my life as a servant and sacrifice for you. And following that conversation with them, they kind of fall back and they begin their own conversation. And the topic of conversation for them is which one of us is the greatest. And when Jesus reaches Capernaum and enters the house, which is probably Peter's house, they're sitting there as a group in the living room there. And Jesus is still prepping his guys for his departure. He's going to, he's going to, He's going to hit home those things that are most important. The time is short for him. The cross is coming for him. And he defines that true greatness that they've been discussing as humility. 
Because humility is one of the big things they've got to get before he's gone. It's about being last of all and servant of all. And that's why Jesus, Jesus picks up a child who's probably running through that living room and takes him up in his arms and says, this is what it's like to serve. This is what it means to be great. It's about serving with no expectation of paybacks. And so whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and the one who sent me. So we can't say we believe Jesus or receive Jesus without humbling ourselves like Jesus. So this is serious stuff. This is heaven and hell stuff. Of all the things that characterize the followers of Jesus in this text, Jesus says, I want it to be humility. That's what rises to the top. And that's going to radically affect how we live in two different ways this morning in verses 38 through 50. The first is this. Humility celebrates the work of God in and through others. Humility celebrates what God is doing in and through others. It's verses 38 through 41. Let's just take in the scene here. Jesus is still holding that child in his arms there in this living room, probably Peter's living room. He's teaching and showing his disciples what true humility looks like. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, the apostle John just blurts out, Teacher, I've got something to tell you. Just the other day, we saw a guy casting out demons in your name, and he wasn't one of us. We didn't even know his name. And we knew that you wouldn't be happy about that. And so we told him to stop, to cease cease and desist right then and there on the spot. We shut him down for good. Are you proud of us, Jesus? Because we're sure proud of us, Jesus. Okay, so I added that last part. But that's their attitude here. This living room has become a kindergarten classroom complete with posturing and tattling and schmoozing. It reminds me of the day I came home from kindergarten. And we had just moved from northern Iowa, just about as far north as you can get and still be in Iowa, to south of Kansas City, where people there talk all southern-like. And it was my first day of kindergarten after Christmas break, and I remember coming home And Mrs. Lemon, my new kindergarten teacher, she really had this southern drawl. And that day in kindergarten, we learned our vowels. A, E, I, O, and. Let's try that again. A, E, I, O, and U. And so I come running home. I come running in the door and I say, Mom, 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 I learned something new today. Mrs. Lemon taught us our vows. And she said, What? I said, Mrs. Lemon, she taught us our vows. She said, What are vows? And I said, well, Mom, you should know this. You, you've been to kindergarten, right? I mean, they're A-E-I-O-U. And I still remember her saying, Kenneth, those aren't vowels. Those are vowels. And that's when I lost it. Right then and right there, 
Mom had just committed the unpardonable sin because she wasn't a part of our kindergarten class. She couldn't say it right. She couldn't be right. She wasn't one of us. That's John here. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. You know why, Jesus? Because he wasn't one of us. He wasn't following us. That was the sticking point. This guy trying to cast out demons or casting out demons wasn't a part of our group. So he can't be casting out demons because that's what we do. That's our role. Jesus, that's what you called us to do. And so he's disrespecting us. We're the 12. The big 12. You see what pride does? You see how it causes rivalry and envy and jealousy? Because if you look back at verse 18 in this chapter, you'll see that these disciples, this little group of disciples, couldn't cast out a demon. And if they can't do it, then that guy over there can't either. That's what pride does. It it pulls in the walls of God's kingdom to the small, narrow confines of our own little lives, our own little perspective, our own little gifts, our own exclusive club, the kingdom of us. And Jesus hates that. And so he says, guys... The issue here isn't whether that guy belongs to your little group. It's whether he belongs to me. You're forgetting that my kingdom is bigger than you and broader than you because not all my followers are right here in this living room as a part of this little group. I'm bringing all kinds of people from all kinds of places into my kingdom. So don't stop that guy because the one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards. He won't be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. The one who is not against us is for us. When it comes to Jesus... There is no option of neutrality with Jesus. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. And Jesus is telling us here that that guy that the disciples shut down was a legit follower, even though he wasn't a part of their little group. And there are legit followers of Jesus today who aren't a part of our group. They aren't our kind of Baptist. They may not even be Baptist at all. They may be evangelical free or Calvary Chapel or Presbyterian. There are gospel-loving, Jesus-worshipping, Bible-believing, God-fearing, genuine Christians who are outside our group. And Jesus says, don't be against them. Be for them. Because they aren't against me. They're for me. Now, Let me be clear here. This doesn't mean that Jesus is calling us to some kind of theological or doctrinal minimalism where the core essentials of the historic Christian faith don't matter. They do matter a lot. Those core essentials delineate 
the true followers of Jesus, but they also teach us that we aren't the only ones following Jesus. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with true, genuine followers of Jesus not dotting every I and crossing every T like you do when it comes to Calvinism or Arminianism? Yeah, I went there. When it comes to whether you wear a tie or don't, when it comes to music, One of my favorite memories of my dad happened back in 2014 at the Together for the Gospel Conference in Louisville. We had just heard John Piper preach, and we're walking back to our hotel room when I saw tears beginning to well up in my dad's eyes. He said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, we may differ with some of these men on some things, But we're on the same team. We preach the same gospel. And we'll spend eternity in the same heaven, worshiping the same Jesus. You believe that? People who differ with you on the minutia, but love the gospel of Jesus. How do you think about them? Do you celebrate them? What God is doing in them and through them? Or have we adopted the disciples' attitude of exclusivity that says, we're the few. We're the faithful. We're the fruitful. And we're proud of it. Jesus humbles his guys and us right here in verse 41 when he says to the disciples, guys, it isn't about your little huddle. It's about you being humble. Because even the small stuff people do in my name makes a big impact. Even when it's just giving you a cup of water to drink. Those are the people who won't lose their reward. Listen, Jesus is saying this. He's saying that humility shows up best, not in the greatness of our gifting, but in the willingness of our serving. You see, greatness in God's kingdom isn't about casting out lots of demons or preaching lots of sermons. It's about cups of water. It's about the little things like dropping off supper for that worn-out mom or asking that single dad if you can take his daughter with you to get her nails done. It's about listening, mom and dad, when your teenager needs to talk. It's about the small stuff that nobody but God notices. He sees the small things. He rewards the small things. Because in God's kingdom, small things make a big impact. Not just in serving others and celebrating others, but in caring for others. Because next, in verses 42 through 50, Jesus says this. Humility guards 
and protects the work of God in the lives of others. Pride loves to tell you that you live in your own personal bubble where your choices only affect you. Where you can kind of keep your arms around the consequences of the choices you make. But that's not true. Ever. Your life is always affecting others and influencing others. I mean, we've just come through the Christmas season. How many of you have seen the movie somewhere, sometime, the movie entitled It's a Wonderful Life? Raise your hand. Okay. I will pray for the rest of you. The rest of you, your assignment this week, your homework this week is to find that movie and watch it. It's, it stars Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. And back when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, NBC, you remember this? NBC would play It's a Wonderful Life every Thanksgiving night. Now, let me just uh, caveat here. Don't get your theology from this movie. Especially when it comes to the angel Clarence. But actually, the moral of this movie is ripped from the words of Jesus here. Pride tells you, like pride tells George Bailey, to underestimate the amount of influence you have on others. Because pride wants you to underestimate the responsibility you have for others. That's not just true in It's a Wonderful Life with George Bailey. That's true in your life, and in your life, and in your life, and in my life. Humility gets that we've been chosen by God to be part of what he's doing in the lives of others. And so each of us then bears a moral responsibility for our brothers and sisters in Jesus. And that's because everything we say and everything we do as followers of Jesus either encourages people to walk closer with him or drift further from him. And so right here, In Peter's living room, with this young child still in his arms, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. This is serious, but let me just, a little note here. Jesus isn't just talking about children per se. He's speaking of those All those who are God's children, who are precious to the Heavenly Father, like this little child is precious. Those who believe on Jesus. Those who belong to Him by faith. And Jesus says that if we cause a fellow believer in Jesus to stumble in their walk with Jesus, it would be better for us that a great millstone were hung around our neck and that we were thrown into the sea. Wow! This is serious. Jesus gets graphic here. He goes all PG-13 on us. And the disciples get that picture. Because in their day, that's what the Romans did to insurrectionists. It was death by drowning. 
And so my obedience to God matters. Not just for me, but for you. My moral choices matter because those choices affect my spouse and my kids and my neighbors and my classmates and my co-workers. I'm always, all the time, influencing others, even in the little moments. And because life is comprised of so many little moments, most of our moral choices in those little moments seem not to matter that much. But they do. Because the trajectory of our life is set by those 10,000 little moments that shape the one or two big moments. So let the words of Jesus here speak into the little moments, the little choices of our lives. Because little moments can make a big impact. And that means we've got to be serious about our own sin. When Jesus here talks about caring well for our brothers and sisters in Jesus, he begins by saying, not just a cup of cold water, but look out for you. Take your sin seriously. How seriously? Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Do your feet take you where you shouldn't go? Do your hands do things you shouldn't do? Do your eyes look at things you shouldn't see? If so, then Jesus says, take radical action, not just to amputate that sin, but to cut off the supply, the blood flow that feeds that sin. Again, it's a graphic picture. It's a hyperbole here. Jesus is not calling us to self-mutilation here. He's not saying that you'll be able to recognize true Christians because they're walking around without hands and feet and eyes. He's saying... Take your own sin seriously and take radical action to cut that sin out of your life because others are being influenced by that sin. We never live to ourselves. That's what humility gets. And so this is what humility does. It takes sin seriously. Listen, if you struggle with porn... The next step you should take after you leave the church service this morning is to call up your cell phone provider and tell them to remove the data from your monthly plan. If you're married and you find yourself becoming attracted to a coworker, the next phone call you should make is to your boss. And you should say, I need to move departments or I'm going to need to find a new job. You say, but PK, listen, that's extreme. That's radical. That's the point Jesus is making. He is calling us to take our sin that seriously because He did 
He did. He didn't just lose a hand or a foot or an eye for our sin. He lost his life. He laid it down. He gave it up. So I need to ask, have you taken your sin so seriously that you have cried out to Jesus in faith to save you from your sin? Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you repented of your sins and embraced him by faith? You see how seriously he took the sins of people like you. That he would give himself up for it. For those sins in your place. Or maybe you are serious about your sin. And your issue is that, that you think your sin is too sinful for Jesus to forgive. Listen, no sin is too sinful for Jesus. No sin is too much for Jesus. And we know that because of what we read in 1 Peter 2 verse 24. He himself bore our sins. All of them. All of them. That sin that you struggle with, that you think, this is so bad that there's no way Jesus could have, could have paid for this sin. He did. He bore our sins, all of them, in his own body on the tree that we might die to that sin and live to righteousness. Get this, by his wounds you have been healed. When you come to him, you are healed by those wounds. It doesn't say, listen, because Jesus died for most of your sins, then most, most of, uh, of you will be healed by his wounds. No, 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 no. By his wounds, you aren't just partly healed or mostly healed. By his wounds, you have been healed, period. His blood is enough to cover every sin. Will you believe that? We believe that Jesus so closely identifies with sinners like you and me that he takes the penalty and the punishment and the payment for our sins by dying there. Every one of them. And that's why Acts 16 verse 31 says, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Because of who he is and what he has done for you. It is enough. Because Jesus is enough. The cross proves that sin isn't ultimately powerful. Jesus is but the cross also proves that sin is infinitely serious and eternally serious, heaven and hell serious. And that's why Jesus says, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one hand and one foot and one eye than to be thrown into hell. And by the way, when Jesus says hell, he means hell. He doesn't mean some imaginary place where people carry around pitchforks and party with demons all day. Hell is not a perpetual party place. It's a perpetually painful, painful place. Hell is real. 
And the disciples would get that hell is real when Jesus talks about it because of the Greek word he uses to describe it. It's actually more than a Greek word. It's a place. It's the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna, if you would have lived in Jerusalem, you would know where Gehenna was located. It was located just south of Jerusalem, just outside the city gates. It was Jerusalem's garbage dump. It's where they would dump rotten food and raw sewage. It was a place that was teeming with live maggots. Wonder why Jesus refers to hell as a place where the worm doesn't die? That's why. But it was also a place that was perpetually on fire. 24-7, 365. Burning. Day and night. And that's the picture Jesus paints of hell. It's a real place. It's a painful place. It's an eternal place. It's a place where the worm, the soul, does not die. And the fire never goes out. And where everyone is salted with fire. Listen, I know that's hard to hear. It's hard for me to say because I have friends And family members and neighbors that I care about who haven't yet trusted in Jesus. And if they don't, this is their their destiny. But Jesus knows what he is talking about because this is the kind of hell he'll experience on the cross for us. Where he's facing the punishment for our sins. He will smell the smells of hell. He will see the fires of hell. He will feel the pain of hell. Absorbing God's wrath against our sins. So these aren't just words from Jesus. This is reality for Jesus. And so when he says hell is real, we can't dismiss it or tweak it or apologize for it. Jesus says what he means and he means what he says. Hell is as real as sin is. That's why you never, never, ever want to cause anyone to stumble into sin. Because sin is the highway to hell. Romans 6 verse 23. The wages of sin is death. So take your sins seriously because you take hell seriously. And take take hell seriously because you take Jesus seriously. Do you? Because as Jesus wraps up his teaching time there in Peter's living room, he says, guys, guys, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you ever make it salty again? Jesus is using another word picture here. One that has to do with food, and so the guys would be familiar with it. Few things influence the taste of food like salt. Few things influence the the taste of steak or eggs or, I have to throw in a, a vegetable here, green beans. Few things influence the taste like salt. So don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your influence. It's what Jesus talks about in the Sermon of the, uh, of the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. Don't 
lose your influence. Be humble. And so Jesus says in verse 50, use that influence to promote peace with one another. It's what the disciples need to learn. Let me give you two ways that you can guard your saltiness and that you can promote peace with one another as we conclude this morning. Two takeaways. Number one, take notice of others. Take notice of what God is doing in them and through them and then celebrate that. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you wrote a thank you note to someone for how they served you? Or your children? Or your spouse? Let's be intentional about noticing the everyday, no big deal kind of stuff that most people overlook. But you're not going to. The people who serve you, you're going to notice them. Because that stuff they do is a big deal to God. That's why my heroes of the faith are not great preachers like Charles Spurgeon or Billy Graham or John MacArthur or John Piper. In fact, my great heroes of the faith aren't pastors at all except for one, my dad. And he's not my hero of the faith because of the great sermons he preached, but because of the small everyday moments he shared with me. Like when he played catch with us three boys in the yard or shot hoops with us in the driveway or mowed lawns with us in town. Those little everyday moments that occurred 40 years ago still matter to me today. Just like the people who've served my wife and me by volunteering in the church nursery, watching our five children when they were little so that I could preach. And right here this morning, we have in this room people who teach our two youngest daughters every day at Schaumburg Christian School. We have other people who teach our daughters on Wednesday nights in youth group and on Sunday mornings in youth Sunday school. You don't see those people, but God does. People serving behind the scenes, doing the little things that make a big impact in God's kingdom. Here's my challenge to you. Pull them aside to thank them. Take them out for dinner. Write a thank you note. Drop them an email. Humble people notice others and celebrate how God is using them. Because secondly, humble people take Jesus seriously. Take notice of others because they take Jesus seriously. You won't take others seriously. You won't take your sin seriously until you take your relationship with Jesus seriously. Can I ask you, are you taking your relationship with Jesus seriously? And I kind of talked about at the beginning this morning, things that people take seriously. What rises to the top for you? Is it Jesus? Because when you take your relationship with him seriously, you'll grow in your love for the people that Jesus loves. You'll care deeply about those people that Jesus cares about. You'll value those people that Jesus values. You'll consider how your choices don't just affect you, but affect them. Because as you fall deeper in love with Jesus, you won't just grow in your love of what Jesus loves. You'll hate what Jesus hates. You'll hate your sin. 
And you'll take radical steps to kill it. So hear the heartbeat of Jesus. And fall deeper in love with Jesus. By humbling yourself before Jesus. 1 Peter 5 verse 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's be a people of grace. And when we are, we'll take humility seriously. Because God does. Amen. Father, these are hard words I know to hear. These are hard words to say. But they are essential words, necessary words, serious words. Thank you for loving us enough to tell us the hard things. So may we now not simply be hearers of the word, may we be doers. And for some of you in this room this morning, maybe it's the first step you need to take. You need to become a doer and you need to place your faith and trust in Jesus. You need to cry out to him in faith. You need to call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved, the Bible says. So will you right now place your faith in Jesus, believing that he is enough. He took your sins seriously enough to give his life for it. Would you trust Jesus? And Christian, would you take pride and humility seriously by celebrating that work God is doing in and through others and and then caring well for others by killing that sin that remains in your life? All of it by God's grace alone and for his glory alone, in his name alone. Amen.